Coming up to security now, Leo's out, but I'm here. But Steve, thankfully, will answer all your questions via Twitter. He'll cover the latest security news, and he's going to answer the question, is Backblaze really secure? No, is it really, really secure? Steve knows, and he's going to tell you. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 350, recorded April 25th, 2012, Q&A number 142, slash cloud storage. Security Now is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All stream directly to you to save you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, visit Netflix.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that keeps you safe online. Now, obviously, I'm not Leo Laporte. He's off in Norway. I hear he's hanging out with some fjords or something, taking some photos of them. If you're following him on Path, you probably are seeing this or on Twitter. But I'm Aya Zaktar. I'm filling in. But thankfully, of course, we have the star of this show. We have, we have Steve Gibson. You know from GRC, Spinrite. Pretty much, he's pretty much saved you so many hassles because if you listen to him and you watch this show like I do, you know that... If you just if you get so much smarter just listening to Steve. So, Steve, <laughs> thanks for being here, and hopefully you can guide me through this episode because I'm new to hosting Security Now. Well, as as Tom has demonstrated, there's really nothing to it. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure this will work very well. We have, uh, you know, our, our normal protocol is to alternate every other week with a Q&A, and this is nominally, and, and so this would be a Q&A week following up on last week's topic, which was cloud storage. But the cloud storage topic in general is just so big and so hot right now. And of course, just in the last day or two, Google did finally unveil their their long-anticipated Google Drive. Uh, almost in sync with that, Microsoft uh, upped... Uh, their SkyDrive storage to 25 gigs free for anybody who'd been using it before as some sort of loyalty bonus or something. And naturally, security is a huge, I mean, maybe the huge question surrounding cloud storage because it's one thing for us to have, you know, our own local hard drives and, and be like trying to keep our machines free of viruses. It's, a, it's another scale of security concern to be sending vials that we may have varying degrees of concerns of of privacy about out into the cloud. So, you know, we the good news is we absolutely know that we have the technology to do this safely. Crypto provides us absolute as, as the acronym that we've developed here on this podcast is TNO, trust no one, meaning that there, we we're able to send off blobs of noise, you know, pseudo random noise 
which no force on earth, as far as we know, can reasonably decrypt and put that out there for storage and, and then get it back. And so last week we talked about a number of these things. Well, the topic and the issue of security generated a huge response on my Twitter feed. And so I, I began noting these. And, you know, I normally have a like sort of from the Twitterverse section of the podcast every week where I grab a few of the most significant or or uh, tweets that I think would be interesting to our audience and share them. Well, this time it just dominated the the topic, the issue of cloud storage, and many people brought up very good points. So this Q&A is the first one we've ever had, which was 100% driven by Twitter rather than the normal, you know, security now slash feedback, or I guess it's grc.com slash feedback, uh, feedback page. I didn't even get to the mailbag, but then something else happened, which is Several people who are our listeners are using a cloud storage service called Backblaze. And it's not one that we covered last week of the dozen or so that we did. And when I went to, and so they tweeted saying, hey, I've got more than like a terabyte. Like I think one guy's got 1.2 terabyte up at Backblaze and is very happy with it. And uh, I went to the site and dug around and it did not look to me as if they had done their security right. Um, I mean, not, not really wrong, but their pages were very confusing, pretty pictures, but it just didn't look right to me. And so I tweeted a few tweets that I'll read toward the end of the show, which generated even more furor, and the CEO and co-founder of Backblaze sent me a tweet saying, hey, Steve, um, I'd like to understand what your concerns are. So I, because this is, you know, a, a, an important issue, I wrote him a note outline, outlining what my problems were, and he responded with a detailed reply, uh, and then I responded. So I want, to, I want to catch up on the news. We've got some news this week, and, and run through these 21 tweets of comments pretty quickly and then I, I i want to look closely at backblaze because they look like they're a great company uh, there's there's no reason to mistrust them their security is as good as many other cloud storage solutions so i mean it's not like this is horrible and everyone should go running away from them but th they they say that they're offering something that they're not, and, and that's the key. This is, unfortunately, this is a, a perfect example of, of people using powerful crypto tools, but not in the right way. And, and so it's sort of a, a great little case study. Uh, again, I'm not suggesting people run from them. I'm just suggesting that, unfortunately, their documentation is so poor that people believe they're getting security that they're not. And that often happens. Not, I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to be singling these guys out, but, you know, that was the question that I got asked by Twitter followers. And for everybody, I think what they're doing and the way they're doing it is a, just a perfect little case study. 
Okay, so so that's, that's what we're going to do this week. So we're going to go through all these tweets first? or Well, uh, let's catch up on news. Um, right. There is, just in the last day or two, Microsoft Security Essentials came out with version 4.0. Mary Jo Foley reported in ZDNet that what she had had was two-point-something, and she wasn't sure whether they skipped over three or maybe she hadn't updated to three or what, but 4.0 is now available. It is showing as important, an important update in the, in the regular Windows update deal, so you don't have to go get it, but if you Google just MSE, it's you know just the acronym, Microsoft Security Essentials, it's the first link that comes up, and... Uh, and so you can manually download it, or you can go check with Microsoft Update or Windows Update, depending on what it's called on your machine. You'll find it listed not for uh, currently, not for immediate self-download and install, but you can check it, and then it'll download it. It's about 12 megabytes. I think it's 10 for the uh, x86 version, 12 for, for the um, 64-bit version. And, you know, Microsoft says it's better. So <laughs> that's what we should use. Uh, when I fired up this machine uh, to set up our Skype connection, uh, I, I verified that, in fact, it was available. I downloaded it and installed and not make me restart the machine. So that was nice. So just letting everyone know. Uh, and a tip of the hat to Simon Zarafa, who told me that they gave me the heads up that this thing was available. So, and, you know, and it's it's. As we've discussed this before, Security Essentials is Microsoft's anti-spyware, anti-malware, anti-virus tool, sort of for people who refuse to purchase one of the alternative commercially available ones. This one is free. Uh, some head-to-head lineups show that it's not quite as as um, discriminating as other tools. It doesn't quite find as much as the as the commercial guys, but. I say it's a lot better than having nothing. Yeah, I mean, um, Microsoft's big thing. I mean, they, Windows is so popular; it gets attacked all the time. And when Microsoft went ahead and put in their actual uh, their defense stuff, I mean, that's important. You really have to have anti malware, and having something is better than nothing. So even though people knock it, just have something. I mean, that's always safe. Yeah, yeah, and you know that I've got a good friend who who someone else set up a, a Vista machine for her a couple years ago, and there was a trial version of I don't know what, Trend Micro or something. And it worked for however long the trial is, 90 days, six months, a year, who knows. And then it began, you know, bothering her for money. And so that's when I got the call saying, Steve, uh, this thing is telling me that my trial of Trend Micro has expired. Do I have to pay the money? And my answer was, uh, no, remove that. And install Microsoft Security Essentials, and you'll never be bothered for money again. So, you know, for for someone like that who's, you know, not a hardcore security person who otherwise would have nothing, this makes more sense. Especially if you know paying something for it is more than more than they're willing to do. So, yeah, I completely agree. I as um, also Firefox version twelve has happened. Um, when I I was at eleven point zero, and I have. You know, famously recently made the move from I was way back. I was staying back in three land until they finally fixed their memory problems, which they finally did, uh, despite several claims to have done so, but not until they got to 11. Um, all I did was do 
I went under um, help and about that brought up the dialogue and immediately prompted it to start downloading number 12. So um, it's about a 7 meg update. The This is, you know, there's a number of, you know, ongoing fixes, uh, bleeding edge features and protocols that they're adding. They're, they're heading toward what Google has done, which is the seamless in the background update. What's significant about 12 is that they have an architecture now using a service, a, a Windows service. The service is not running all the time, but it's, they're able to start it up when they need to. It has the privileges of, of the system to allow it to update the files, which you would normally have to pass through the user account control window to allow. So this is their way with version 12, they've bypassed user account control. Now, I get, you know, I have a little bit of a what we call on the podcast a Gibsonian reaction to that because one hopes that they've done this safely and securely because potentially this means that there is a service that Firefox users now have in their system which if abused could install anything on their system. So I, I know I'm sure the Mozilla people know that and that they've somehow they've created authentication and crypto and whatever they need to in order to do this securely. Uh, it certainly is a convenience that that Firefox is able to do this. I did have to restart Firefox to go from 11 to 12. They're, as I understand it, their goal for the next major release, version 13, is they'll get full seamless background updates and just be fixing Firefox for us very much the way the way Chrome does, where it's just always, as you're using it, it's uh, you're using the latest version. Steve, now you install Firefox 12. Is there an option to turn off the automatic updates after you turn it on? Because, I mean, if you have extensions and things, couldn't these things break over time because you're just automatically updating? I mean, I, mean, that, I, mean, I, I was cleaning out one of my old computers, and I found Firefox 1.5. I'm like, I'm not letting this go. <laughs> I might need this later on, just in case. But I mean, can, um, you, can you turn off some of these? I guess, I guess, convenient features that could be a problem. Um, I'm sure it's configurable. When I when I brought up the help about box, it immediately started downloading it. Although I I did I did have to tell it to go ahead and and do its thing and perform the update. It then did run through all my add-ons and verify that they were they, they were compatible with this version. So. Um, you know, in this case, going for, for me, going from 11 to 12 was was painless. Um, but I'm I'm sure I, I remember when we were talking about this initially that that they were going to be doing this that this background update because some people would be uncomfortable with it, or maybe corporations are still saying we need you know we're a Firefox house, but we still don't want this happening without IT first you know taking a good hard look at, at what's going on. So that may very well have happened. That, 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 that is to say, I'm sure there is a way that, it's, that you can disable that behavior. And right now, the automatic updates are just on the Windows version. As far as I know, the Mac version doesn't allow that just yet. Ah, okay. Good to know that. Now, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about um, iOS password managers in some depth. And one of the, one of the things that I ran across indicated that depending upon your 
upgrade path from iOS version 3 to 4 and to 5, it might be that you're, you, di- you did not have the whole device encryption actually running that iOS 4 and 5 have offered due, due to the fact that it might not have been present. Well, it wasn't present in 3, but it might not have gotten activated. And somebody was kind enough to send me a tweet with the details. Unfortunately, I, that got lost in my Twitter feed, so I can't give him credit. But on uh, tidbits.com is an article where the author explains exactly how this can happen. Now, the good news is it's easy. Bo- both things are easy. It's easy to tell what your current state is, and it's easy to fix it if it's, if it's wrong right now. So on the passcode lock settings screen of any iOS device, phone or pad, if you see the words at the bottom, data protection is enabled, then you're golden. That means that you, you have whole device encryption running, not just some parts of the OS being encrypted as Apple was sort of moving forward in how much of, of the this device storage they were encrypting. So the passcode lock setting screen, if down the bottom says data protection is enabled, you're good. If you go there and you don't see that, then you don't have whole device encryption. The way that can happen is if you had the passcode enabled at iOS 3 and then simply upgraded to 4, encryption would not have been applied. So there are probably some technical reasons that that Apple was unable to do that as evidenced by the fact that in order to get it on... If it's not, you have to first, and so here's the steps. Um, Assuming that you're now on probably iOS 5, you first disable and remove the passcode from the device. So shut that down first. Then back up the device to iTunes, um, and you can just control-click on it and then choose backup uh, in iTunes. So... That'll copy all of the device onto your local um, iTunes-based drive. Then restore the device by clicking the restore button on the summary screens in iTunes. And this article says that he's been told that control clicking and choosing restore does not work. So don't use the, the context menu for restoring use the restore button on the summary screens in iTunes. And once you've done that, then on the device, re-enable your passcode and you'll then be secure and fully encrypted. And of course, go back to the passcode lock setting screen. That's where you would have been anyway to re-enable your passcode and verify that it now says data protection is enabled and you've got whole drive encryption running. Um, uh, in this article, he mentioned that he was he was the presenter in some sort of a a conference of security professionals and he had everybody in the audience look and a disturbingly high percentage did not have data protection enabled although they had passcodes on their machines that were running ios 4 or 5 
So that, that was a small sample, but these were security aware people, and this had just caught people off guard. So I would imagine uh, some percentage of our listeners are going to be in that in that condition too. Now we've got the whole the whole readout on that. So there's no way to automatically do this. You've got to go through this five-step process, which the first step, again, is to turn off your passcode. So it seems like, so wait, to get more secure, I have to be less secure for just a little <laughs> bit. Uh, it's, 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 uh, so there's no automatic way to do this. It's just simply you've got to do these steps, just double-check, and then your whole device will be encrypted. Right. Okay. Right. I should, now I've got to check up my old devices. <laughs> this is good. This is good. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are going to be doing that. The good news is it's easy to see. Uh, if it had been tough to determine whether you encrypted or not, or if you had to do this, you know, like preemptively and not know one way or the other, that would have been a big pain. But, you know, it's easy to see whether you've got it already encrypted or not, and, you know, not that big a problem to fix it. And I imagine everybody who is a podcast listener, like this podcast, cares. And so this um, will let them fix it easily. Um, also, on the Mozilla front, something that we have talked about and, and anticipating has happened. Uh, I got a tweet from Ron Chung, uh, who his, his tweet is at Director Ron C, um, that Mozilla had released. In fact, I think when I first saw it, it was at beta, and now it's released. Their native PDF viewer. Um, as we know, Chrome, one of the nice things about Chrome is they've got a PDF viewer built in. You're not using Adobe's rather rickety platform for viewing documents. Um, so it was, it was, you know, good news that, that Firefox would be getting a native PDF viewer too. Um, it does exist. Uh, they're calling it PDF. It, it, the, the file is pdf.js. And what it is, is a JavaScript and HTML5, I, I consider an amazing capability demonstration. The fact, the fact that you can render PDF files with JavaScript and HTML5 is phenomenal. Um, the bad news is it's still not very usable. And it's not clear to me it's going to be. If you absolutely refuse to use Adobe's plugin, the Adobe Reader plugin. And in fact, I had the Acrobat plugin that was a nightmare because I was, it was like bringing up dialogues and, and complaining and all kinds of things. I was finally, I finally moved over to Sumatra PDF browser plugin, uh, which I really like. But for the sake of the podcast, I thought, okay, well, and, and I was hoping that this native HTML I'm sorry, PDF viewer for Mozilla uh, would be a good thing. So first time I tried it, it didn't appear to work. Well, that was no script blocking me. You have to, and I should have looked, but I didn't. I just thought, okay, well, it doesn't work at all. <laughs> then, then actually I sent a tweet back to Ron and he said, well, it did for me. So I, I poked in a little bit harder and you have to permit something called Mose-file data colon under no script and I gave it permanent uh, rights, and then it does work. But ooh, is it slow? And uh, again, it's amazing that they can do it at all. So I would consider it a phenomenal capability demonstration. But there's no way I could use it because you know, as you scroll down pages, you get blank pages with the little wait spinner clock, and then the page renders. And it it does a 
very nice job once it gets there, but it's just, it's, I don't know that it's ever going to be practical to render something at, that is written in a language as complex as, 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 well, it's PostScript is what is, you know, underlies the PDF format. So this is JavaScript interpreting, which is largely interpreted, interpreting PostScript in order to do very sophisticated rendering. To me, it's you're all we, a native solution, you know, like Sumatra or like Adobe is just going to do a, a far faster and superior job. Uh, and given that we have Sumatra browser plugin, which is free, you know, and, you know, it's, it's if nothing else, it doesn't have as big a target painted on it as Adobe does with, with you know, uh, PDF uh, vulnerabilities. Uh, I'm very happy with Sumatra, but they may be able to make it uh, advance it in the future, make it go faster. Who knows? Or maybe they'll end up writing a native PDF viewer themselves, much as as Google did with Chrome. But it does exist, and it, it's cool that it, it can even be done. Any alternative to Acrobat is always pleasant. I mean, I remember when, when uh. I see links to PDFs, it used to say, warning, PDF, because that means it's going to try to launch an application. It, you might see that splash screen that says it's loading like a 1,000 plugins, and you're like, why does it take this long? When Chrome came along with its built-in reader, it was actually pretty easy to the point where I, there was a little JavaScript uh, bookmarklet that you could say, open with uh, Chrome's or Google's uh, PDF reader. And now that Mozilla's got it, I mean, it's going to make it a lot easier to accept PDFs instead of going, I don't want to open that. That's just going to be yeah. easy. Well, and of course, as, as we know, Adobe was trying to promote all their formats. So they've got, you know, a flash built into their PDF reader. It's like, okay, wait, 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 wait. When did a document ever need to have flash in it? And yet it's been a, you know, multi-opportunity vulnerability for for malware and malware authors in the past you know it's just a, a bad place so you know so of course the 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 well and, and scripting too scripting in the pdf so you know best practice is disable flash disable scripting in your pdf viewer of all things so it just makes much more sense to have a a, a dumber pdf viewer because dumber in this case is going to be safer since it is a, it is a large attack surface for for people who are messing around on the web, so this was just this was just tongue in cheek. I I actually I tweeted something about you know uh, here's a hoot uh, yesterday, and I learned that there are some script bots watching Twitter feeds, and if you ever use the word a hoot in a tweet, then these things pick them up and retweet them to everyone in the world. So it's like okay, well, <laughs> it's the first time I'd use that word. Anyway, Sophos, the well known. Uh, a good reputation security firm uh, put out a press release um, just recently that announced that and just this is what I thought was so bizarre one in every five Mac machines harbors Windows malware um, and they have a link where they show a breakdown they took uh, using their own assessment tool. Uh, the, which was resident in a, in a 100,000 Mac machines. So they had a 100,000 Mac sample. One out of five of those machines contained Windows malware. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, so it's not going to be effective on a Mac. It's, you know, it's like it's the wrong DNA. It can't infect 
a Mac because it's all of its tricks are for Windows. Um, but of course, what this represents is that there's just so much of this Windows malware around and that something that's trying to infect you, for example, using a Java exploit, which of course Windows has shared, I'm sorry, Mac and the Apple have until very recently shared with the rest of the, of the Java using largely Windows community. When your browser has that vulnerability, the, the thing trying to infect you either doesn't know or doesn't care who the host is. Chances are still, due to the install base of Windows versus Macs, that it's going to be a Windows machine, all of the things being equal. Um, so, you know, it's, it's you know, just sort of bizarre that uh, one in, you know, the 20% of Macs have Windows malware on them just because it's out there and they, they picked it up surfing and doing things that were unsafe or with, you know, some sorts of add-ons uh, like maybe a Java exploit. Uh, that allowed this stuff to get in. Once it got there, it looked around and said, oh, crap, uh, I can't do any, can't get up to any mischief. I can't install myself as a rootkit or do whatever I was going to do. But, you know, it's still a file sitting there. And after that tweet, I got two responses. Uh, Renee Van Belzen, uh, who's in Bergen op Zoom, Netherlands, he sent back about those Macs with Windows malware being ineffective. They still form dormant yet potent repositories for Windows malware. And, of course, he has a point. You know, I mean, it, it is bad, and you don't want it jumping off onto Windows machines, you know, on the same network or, or you know, through any sort of vector. So even though it's unable to get your Mac machine, you know, it's still sort of, you know, latent evilness that's sitting there on your machine. So if you find it, by all means, remove it. Um, and then uh, William Richter in Boston, he said, unscanned Macs in mixed environments serve as carriers for Win malware if they have email or USB. So, which is sort of a variant on what what Renee said. So, certainly good points. Even though it is, you know, the the wrong machine, it's infected. It's you know still not something that you want around. Yeah, when, when, I, when I was when I heard, first heard this story, the first word that came to my head was carrier. It's just like, okay, it's got this little disease, and people who have Windows already were a little bit, you know, not so happy with, with usually OS X counterparts. But now they have even more reason to be very suspicious when they're like, where's that USB key been? What files are on this thing? Because if you try to open everything, you might find out that it's infected. I mean, it, it's, it's almost because OS X users have been lulled into the security, like, hey, look, nobody goes after us. But they're downloading files like crazy from who knows where. They can, they can do silly your practices. But they are downloading some, some infected files that, if passed around, could lead to disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another little tidbit coming back to something that we discussed years ago. Um, it came to light that the FireWire interface, the, uh, you know, the IEEE 1394 interface, which is pretty much fading into the background now that we have USB 2 and especially USB 3. Um, and what is it? Is this a Thunderbolt or something? Whatever Intel's insanely fast next generation serial interface is. Anyway, what we learned and we have discussed in the past is that the, the FireWire interface is actually a serial bus connection to the machine it's installed on. 
And you have things like direct memory access, so-called DMA. Uh, and again, Simon Zarafa brought this to my uh, notice, and so I want to thank him for it. Um, the abuse of FireWire has pretty much now going mainstream over at Break and Enter, B-R-E-A-K-N-E-N-T-E-R.org, breakandenter.org, under their projects directory is something called Inception. And quoting from them, uh, from their page, they said, Inception is a firewire physical memory manipulation and hacking tool employing IEEE 1394 SBP2 DMA. SBP is just the, that's the acronym for serial bus protocol, which is, you know, all, all firewire. Then, then going on, it says, Inception was originally coded as a GPL replacement for WinLockPone, the Windows Fireware, FireWire unlock tool made available by Adam Beaulieu, a.k.a. MetalStorm, WinLockPone was quite stable against older Windows XP targets, but did not perform well against more modern operating systems like Windows 7, and it is not maintained anymore. As of Linux kernel 2.6.22, Linux distros ships with the new Juju Fireware, FireWire stack, making WinLockPone obsolete. Thus, Inception was born. Inception aims to provide a stable and easy way of performing intrusive and non-intrusive memory hacks on live computers using FireWire. It is primarily intended to do its magic against computers that utilize full-disk encryption, such as BitLocker, FireVault, TrueCrypt, or PointSec. There are plenty of other and better ways to hack a machine that doesn't pack encryption. So, to briefly refresh, the idea is that one of the forensic tricks that that uh, law enforcement will use or bad guys can use is to, to gain access to your machine while BitLocker is running, while TrueCrypt is running, while FileVault is running. The point being that the, the cryptographic keys are available, they have to be available in real time in order to be to be shuttling encrypted and decrypted data back and forth between your system and the hard drive. And there is now rather well-developed technology that knows immediately where to look. And if you give something access to your RAM, these keys are in, the, in RAM, in the clear, and can be immediately snarfed. So the takeaway from all of this is and we've said it before, this, this reminded me to say it again. Since FireWire is probably no longer an interface that you're using, if that's the case, just remove its drivers. Uh, maybe in the BIOS, if you can turn off the IEEE 1394 interface, disable it there, um, or remove the drivers, or disable it in the OS. You just don't want it on. It is a port into your system's RAM and, you know, standard security best practice, of course, is to disable and turn off things you aren't using and don't need. Uh, this is near the top of the list for machines that have a FireWire port. I mean, again, 
It's not like it's huge danger. You know, the, the, the hackers can't reach over from the, from the Ukraine and access your machine's FireWire port. But for physical access to the machine, if, if you really do have sensitive stuff there, this, this gets right in. So for users who don't have a FireWire port, are they, are they, should they be worried that somebody can just put in a PCIe card and put FireWire into their computer and then be able to access stuff? Or is, this, is that like a crazy scenario? Well, no. Um, in fact, that, I don't think that is such a crazy scenario. Some of the Macs, for example, have the, um, the FireWire adapters for the uh, PCIe cards that you're able to slip in. Um, and that probably gives you the same sort of access. That is on the system bus. So uh, best to just th- disable those things if you don't need them. Start putting hot glue into all the ports and, and PCIe <laughs> slots. You're like, oh. forget it. Nobody's getting in here. That, that's, <laughs> I mean, the that thing would, is, that, physical access that would, that always is trouble. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, and we've talked, for example, in the past about that whole freezing the RAM and taking it out of the laptop and then, you know, putting it on into a different machine and, you know, like keeping it alive by, by bringing the temperature down. It's like, okay, well, there's... <laughs> There's a physical access hack if ever there was one. Um, once again, I have to punt on that Dropbox tech blog um, entry where they talk about the realistic password strength estimator. Uh, as you'll see when you see what's, what's in this podcast, I just did not have time to get to it. Uh, and I had no time during the week. So I'm not forgetting it. I'm pushing it into next week. And I will keep it alive until I finally get to it. Okay, so quickly, 21 tweets from the Twitterverse. Um, Otto Jasilla, uh, he says, Tarsnap is the only cloud tool I feel comfortable installing on server. Client sources available, there are bug bounties, and a well-known author. And so you know, my reaction is, um, that's 100% understandable. Um, Tarsnap is it's Linuxy or or Unixy, so it's I mean and it's only for those platforms. Um, and, and I agree. I like the idea of a of the visibility of an open source tool. Um, and so I, I just sort of wanted to acknowledge that posting. I I Tarsnap was down near the end of the list because we did it alphabetically last week, and I just sort of. You know, sort of shrugged it off as well. This isn't really for anybody, but I I stand corrected. I think it is for you know Unix and Linux, you know, admin scale people who like the idea of a of a clean and and simple and sort of knowable tool rather than just you know assuming that they're linking this to something in the cloud and it's it's going to be good. Uh, it uses Amazon S three. And the EC2 uh, as its back end, and of course I'm a big Amazon S3 user. Um, they do double the price, which you know puts it at you know Amazon is about 15 cents per gig per month, and actually Amazon seems to have dropped their price. I think it's now 12 and a half cents per gig per month. Um, but Tarsnap doesn't doesn't give you an interface to your own Amazon account, but it is it charges you for your use. So they charge 30 cents per gig per month and they front for Amazon. So they're using Amazon themselves, but you don't have direct access to it. For example, as you do if you are using Jungle Disk or one of the other S3 front ends. 
Um, and they also charge 30 cents per gig per month for transit, for bandwidth, apparently in both directions. Now, what's significant there is that Amazon and Racks, that, or uh, Jungle Disk and Rackspace, no, I do mean a- Amazon and Rackspace as cloud providers are now both providing free upload transit. Last week, um, I thought that only Rackspace was, but I checked and Amazon has since dropped their upload fees. Now, to me, that, that's significant. Because, for example, one of the modes I operate in, and I think of, I'm 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 thinking of this in from the standpoint of a server, is in the wee hours of the morning, I have something that wakes up on my server, and takes a static image snapshot of my entire GRC server hard drive. Uh, it's actually surprisingly small. It compresses it, um, then it's encrypted. And it's set up uh, to Amazon. So the idea is it's a win for me that I'm not seeing any upload fees. I maintain a number of past images from from prior days, um, and I have sort of a a staggered backup policy that that, that is implemented. So I've got a bunch of them there. But so the, the point is that I am every day I'm sending a blob up. I am never bringing it back. So all I'm being charged for is the storage, which is, from my standpoint, quite affordable. And, you know, Amazon is like rock solid in terms of of availability of the data. They can have the way their redundancy is set up. They can have two uh, of entire of their data centers go down and you still have real time access to everything. So I'm quite bullish on Amazon. You know, they're just so big that you get the advantage of that. And if you if you do your encryption on your end, then, you know, I mean, believe me, there's no way I would be sending this stuff anywhere unless I was encrypting it first and I was the only one who ever had the keys. Um, but the idea of free upload really works in this sort of a scenario where you're, you're, you're highly weighted in the direction of sending stuff to the cloud, only needing to get it in the result you know, in, in, or in, in, on the occasion that you're needing to recover from some cal- some calamity, or to for some reason to get a, a back copy. Um, moving on, Greg Bell, uh, who tweets as Ferrix, he said, "Oh, also about Tarsnap." He said, "Oh, I'm yeah." He actually, um, uh, uh, I'm confused now. Oh no, I'm sorry. He, uh, he tweeted about Tarsnap. He said, "Only charges." Transfer and storage, no monthly or yearly fee. Okay, well, that's a little confusing because they're charging for storage on a monthly yearly fee. But I guess he, he, so he's saying that there's, oh yeah, he's saying that there's no other charge like a static charge just to be, have for the privilege of their service. And he said, he says, I think that accounts for the price. Great for my Unix backups. And then the reason I was confused is Colin Percival, who saw that that Greg had had uh, commented in my feed, he so he wrote to both of us and he said, to the point where the median Tar Snap customer is only paying about ten cents per month. Well, okay, I don't know how Colin has that data, 
um, maybe he has some inside information about the amount of storage that Tarsnap users are are storing. Uh, but that would be given thirty cents per gig per month. Someone paying ten cents per month would have a third of a gig backed up. So I suppose you know it's certainly possible to only be be paying ten cents a month and um, and nothing more. Um, Carl Wilson said, FYI, Spider Oaks Sync requires data to be backed up online already. Then he said, share, wor- share rooms can be password protected. Sugar Sync has no PIE, meaning pre-internet encryption. Um, and so um, I'm not sure what he means when he says Spider Oaks Sync requires data to be backed up online already. Um, I'm going to find out because one of the things that has happened as, as again, a result of my continuing focus on this whole topic of cloud storage is that Spider Oak remains a contender for uh, a very nice looking, very feature rich cloud storage solution. So um, I'm, I'm still maybe next week. I, I just, as a function of how much of what time permits and how much time I have to dig down into it, but the Spider Oak guys are there. Uh, I've heard from somebody else since at Spider Oak who's standing by to give me any technical details that I need. So uh, it's certainly something that I'm going to get to as soon as I can. Um, uh, Fiz Imam said, "I have 1.2 terabytes backed up on Backblaze." For $5 a month, mostly photos. Took me months to get it up there, but it rocks. And so I think that this was one of the tweets that sort of began, you know, my saying, okay, what is Backblaze? And that drove me into taking a close look at them. And and at, at, this, at, at the time that I made this note, I said, so far as I can tell, it's not TNO. And... That's 100% confirmed now. It's not, which is not to say that's a huge problem. I don't want to overblow this, and lots of other providers aren't. For example, none of the big ones are. You know, SkyDrive and Google Drive and, uh, you know, uh, Dropbox, of course, you know, these big ones that offer lots of services, they, the notion of the services they offer are incompatible with them having no visibility into your data. You can't have it both ways. So uh, that's something that we'll, we'll cover later on in the podcast because I think what we're going to be seeing sort of evolving out of all of this is, a, is maybe sort of a, a hybrid solution where, where the user has control of some of the things which are absolutely black out on the, uh, out on the cloud. Nobody can possibly get to them. And then other things there, which they know are, are less secure, but that's the trade-off they make because they want to be able to share links to them with their friends or, you know, they, they want, you know, simultaneous document editing and all these other things that we're going to be seeing, you know, cloud-based services in the future. Obviously, for those things, it just can't be an opaque block that the, that, that the provider has no visibility into. Um, uh, Thilo, uh, in Switzerland says, if you review spider, if you review spider Oak for security now, you should also check 
voila, uh, as they also do pre-internet encryption with great platform support. So we talked briefly about Wuwala last week. Leo had once been using it and then dropped it. At one point, they were apparently putting their, essentially their cloud storage was other people's hard drives. And I don't know definitively whether they are still doing that or not. What I think Leo said was that if you gave them a chunk of your hard drive voluntarily, then you got better terms with them. Um, they definitely have a technology which uses an ECC-like redundancy, which I did briefly mention last week, the idea being that in very much like a RAID, where you, you, know, you can have a RAID drive die and you can still reconstruct the data from the remaining drives, this is similar to that, and there are other technologies like that, where they build in redundancy into this distributed spray of data so that as long as there's some critical mass of that still available, they're able to reconstruct the whole. The problem is, for me, it's written in Java. Now, uh, whether it puts our data onto other people's machines, I just sort of don't like that. I, again, that's a trade-off a user could make. If, they, if it gives you a much better price, then maybe that's a trade-off you want to make. But Java is, I just don't understand that. I could see Java things being, you know, useful for like free toys and so forth. But these people are charging for this service. And Java, as we'll encounter a little bit later, um, has some problems. Several of the providers are Java-based, of these cloud providers are Java-based. And my point is, why, if you're making money on this service, then... Why not just do a native client? Write a client for Windows. Write a client for the Mac. And, and then you, you're not having to deal with the whole, you know, Java-esque problem. And part of this is sort of the nature of where this came from. It was a project um, of the Swiss, uh, a, a security group uh, in Switzerland. And it just sort of evolved into a commercial thing. Anyway, I'm, you know, I don't think I can get around the fact that it's written in Java. Um, oh, and then uh, he said in a second tweet, don't catch why you trashed Wuwala in your latest Security Now podcast. They don't do space sharing and seem, seem to be on a par with Spider Oak. So I, I, it does look like they've done security right. And but my comment to that was, that, yeah, but Java? like uh rather not have that and there's alternatives that don't uh josh mandel said i don't think i heard clearly if crash plan has pre-internet encryption but their faq states how they do it and even has a link to security now number 230 on blowfish which i kind of got a kick out of the crash plan people linked to this podcast where we described uh, how Blowfish works, because they do. And as I remember, they give you one level of Blowfish, like 128-bit keys, Blowfish, for free. And then if you switch up to their paid version, they give you 4048-bit keys, which is the largest key size that Bruce Schneier's Blowfish uh, cipher is able to, to handle. But it's also written in Java. 
Um, uh, and then I quote, how to use crash plan, but keep, oh, uh, this was on a site. This is what I knew I had here somewhere. This was on a site that noticed the amazing, actually ridiculous is, is the word he used, amounts of memory. He says, how to use crash plan, but keep the Java process from constantly using ridiculous amounts of RAM. And he says, I use crash plan on my online backup, and it's great. Reasonably priced, secure, easy to use. But there's one problem. For better or worse, crash plan is a Java app. And one of the problems with Java apps is they are greedy pigs when it comes to RAM usage. I've often noticed that Java was using close to 400 meg of RAM, even when nothing is happening. To be precise, when crash plan is just hanging out and not actually backing anything up. So, once again, for me, that's a deal killer. If I'm going to have something in my machine, which is going to essentially be part of my machine, running all the time in the background, keeping things synchronized, I'm not willing to give it just shy of half a gig of RAM uh, for that. Not when native clients can be written and have been written that are way more lean. Mike Dennis tweets, I have a four-year family unlimited plan with crash plan and been pretty happy with it. I have over one terabyte backed up to them today across my PCs. And so, you know, I wanted to balance the prior one with this. Mike is, you know, happy that he's got his four-year family plan and tons of data up there, which is affordable. Um, I got a tweet from uh, someone who's didn't give me his name, but his handle is E-N-G-R-I-P-I-M-A-N. He's in Boise, Idaho. He said, Jungle Disk Web Interface allows for trust no one. You must enter your username and password. Then it asks for you for your second, which is the optional password, and then you have files. And, and so my reaction is, well, I have not looked at Jungle Disk. I... Um, I will probably send off a note to Dave, who's you know who's known as Jungle Dave in the forums, and ask him. Um, the question is, the, where Jungle Disk is configured for TNO operation, you give it an optional password, which which then performs all local encryption of blocks that are sent off to either S3 or Rackspace. Um, so that means that the data that they are storing, as is required for TNO, they have no visibility into, they have no keys, never get them, never will. All they can do is give you back the same blob that you gave them. So the question is, in order to do a web-based interface, they would need to do what... LastPass does for us in their implementation, which is that last decryption phase would have to happen in the browser that is client-side, not server-side. Um, from, from, from just that description, you know, you type these things into the browser. Well, off they go. Who knows where they go? 
Um, Dave may say, well, of course, Steve, I did it the right way. You enter your password into the browser. You're entering it into a local JavaScript app. All of the decryption is performed locally. Nothing unencrypted ever goes over the wire, and that password never leaves your machine. I imagine that's what he will say, but I don't know that. So we can't assume that, that this is TNO until we understand the technology, I mean, the details of the technology. And this actually segues perfectly into where we'll be headed later in this podcast when we talk about uh, Backblaze and, you know, the way they use their crypto because it's, you know, the devil is in the details. Thomas Scrace in London said, have you looked at ARC, A-R-Q? Um, it's Haystack Software, all run together, haystacksoftware.com slash A-R-Q for backup. One-time purchase, and it backs up to S3. So I had not looked at it. I like it. Uh, it's, uh, if you're a Mac person, it's, it's Mac only, but it looks very nice. Um, it looks very similar to Jungle Disk. Um, it does local AES 256-bit encryption. Uh, it looks like it's 100% TNO. Uh, it uses S3 as the back end, which, as you've just heard me saying, I like a lot, meaning you can send stuff up there, you know, till the cows come home and, and not get charged for it, except the, the amount of static storage there. Um, they have an open documented file format, which is and an open source command line arc underscore restore command utility, which is hosted over on GitHub. So that's there and and in the clear. You can see how that works. They have a one time license of twenty nine dollars. So and and I should say this, I think, is the model that we're headed for. One-time license for this kind of stuff. I mean, there are going to be some very good solutions that you just pay some amount of money once for. And then, uh, and of course, that's in the, the model then where you use somebody else's storage, like Amazon S3. So you are paying monthly for the actual storage and maybe the transit of the data. But it, it just feels wrong to me that we're stacking up all of these monthly charges on top of each other. Somebody charging for the privilege to use somebody else's storage that you're also being charged for the privilege to use. Um, because we don't have to pay all that. Something like this looks very nice. So again, this is haystacksoftware.com slash arc. Um, they also do versioning. They uh, Under versioning, they called it a Wayback Machine. They said arc keeps multiple versions of your files, a backup history. Following the initial backup, ARC automatically makes incremental backups every hour, every day, up every hour, every day, uploading just the files that have changed since your last backup. ARC keeps hourly backups for the past 24 hours, daily backups for the past month, and weekly backups for everything older, than a month. Under features, his, they, they, they wrote no limits. ARC backs up everything you tell it to back up. And here, he's clearly responding to limits of the other services, limitations. For example, he says, under ARC backs up everything you tell it to back up, it doesn't skip videos or ignore, or ignore certain file types. It backs up files of any size, 4 gig, 40 gig. It doesn't matter. It backs up 
your external drives and your network drives. Several of the other services won't do either of those. It doesn't delete backups of your external drives just because you haven't plugged them in lately. And there are a couple services that actually do that. It doesn't, it doesn't forcibly delete backups older than four weeks. Um, and then my note is, I noted, it will even throttle upstream transfer rates, which means that famous buffer bloat doesn't bite you. While it's working, it will not saturate your outgoing bandwidth. So as we know from our buffer bloat episodes, it won't screw up your, your downstream interactive use of your network connection while this is happening. Anyway, it looks very nice. I'm really, I thank Thomas for bringing it to my attention and for Mac people, uh, check it out. Uh, it's certainly, if you, if you like the idea as I do of where it makes sense, sort of, you know, more of a DIY sort of scenario where, where you've got a relationship with a storage provider and, you know, you kind of want to manage that yourself. You like, you're firm about wanting TNO. You're sure you're not going to lose your key because, of course, if you do, you have no access to that. But that's the whole point of trusting no one. You have to trust yourself. Um, uh, and and it's not a monthly plan that you've got to get on board with. Anyway, uh, for a certain class of our listeners, I'll bet this is a great solution. So uh, check it out. Uh, Brandon Fruit Wrangler says, Wow. SkyDrive just gave me 25 gigs free as a loyalty offer. Can you find out more about the security model? Could be my new fave. Well, I looked and I looked and I looked and I looked. Uh, there's absolutely nothing available. This, is, of course, if Mike is Microsoft's SkyDrive. Nothing available that I could find about their technology. Um, no sign of any trust no one. And as I mentioned before, it's highly unlikely given the services that they're offering, that the, the features that they're offering are far beyond here's a blob of opaque noise, keep it for me. And if I ever need it, then I'm glad to have it back. And, you know, everything of vital importance is in there. So I can't risk anybody else getting it. So, you know, that's very different than these than these highly service-oriented cloud services, which is really where Microsoft is with SkyDrive and Google is with, with Google Drive. We are going to encounter, and I think we're, we'll end up be, we'll, we'll be seeing a lot of the ideas of layering security on top of these services and, and creating sort of a hybrid where you get a, you know, you've got a, 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 a file which is a, a virtual drive hosted by one of these non-TNO services, you're providing, though, the layer of, of encryption, so you get the best of both. You're able to, to, with confidence, put files in there, knowing that they're encrypted before they leave, yet at the same time, it's SkyDrive or Google Drive, and wow, 25 gigs is pretty nice for free, and then you get all of the features with none of the downside for those, but, but except, of course, you don't get the features for those files that you have locked up in your own Tiano sort of sub vault on the service. So I'll bet that's where we end up with, with, with a solution that, that makes that sort of thing uh, work and easy. 
Terry Reck in Greenville, South Carolina said, uh, oh, and in, in his, uh, his little Twitter profile, he said, Mac support specialist by day, jazz musician by night. Um, and he said, uh, oh, he sent me a link to one of the things we're going to start seeing. This was on Macworld. It was automatically encrypt files for your Google Drive. And this, frankly, isn't, a, it's free, but it's kind of kludgy. It uses the, the Mac's uh, scripting-based automator scripts. And, it, and when I went to go check that out, it, it, the, the, the script itself has the description, creates a disk image filled with files and folders from the previous action. Options include compression and encryption. So this looks sort of like something where you manually collect a bunch of things and then drop it on this script, which compresses them, encrypts them, and then probably copies them to your Google Drive. So it's a way of encrypting stuff before they go off to Google, but it's not a seamless client that actually, you know, allows you to mount a uh, something from Google Drive and look at look at it like a folder on your machine where you can easily and freely uh, move things in and out. Um, Oyvind Stok in Bergen, Norway, said, enjoyed SN349. By the way, TrueCrypt plus Dropbox is a great combo. Uploads diffs only, slow the first time with large volumes, but fast after that. Okay, now, this is a very interesting idea because uh, I confirmed that Dropbox hashes four megabyte blocks of large files. So the idea being that if you had a large file and only some piece of it changed, the Dropbox client running on your system is smart enough to realize that that only that piece of a larger file changed and just to upload that. Well, what's very cool about that model with TrueCrypt is if you create a large TrueCrypt file into which you create a TrueCrypt drive, then as we know, when you... When you true crypt this large container file, it will fill it with noise. Absolute, you know, it, it encrypts it, pseudo-random noise. That then you synchronize with Dropbox. And this is the part that takes a long time if you create, you know, a terabyte volume or, or who knows what you're going to do. But uh, you, you, you get it synced. Okay, now remember that this file, this, this container, internally it's mapped just like a physical drive, meaning that in the front are directories, and then there are file, the equivalent of file allocation tables. And the actual physical space in the file represents the physical span of a drive. So reading and writing files in and out of it would only be changing those sectors, the sector equivalents in the file, which would mean that things you do 
would only change pieces, which would then be rounded up to four megabytes, and those four megabyte chunks would get synchronized through Dropbox. So this is interesting. Um, now, one glitch maybe is that I did encounter a reference to needing to unmount the volume for Dropbox to sync it, which, of course, breaks the whole coolness, transparency of it. So I haven't tried this. Uh, maybe some listeners will and let me know uh, what the limitations are. But you know, it, it is if you are a person who likes TrueCrypt, um, now the downside is, and there are other solutions that don't have this problem, obviously. The downside is the whole concept is you create a fixed size container, which means you're creating a fixed size virtual drive. That is, it is not inherently elastic. It isn't expanding and contracting. Things based on the encrypted file system, which we talked about last week and we will we'll touch on this week, they do encrypt files and the directory system metadata. So there you get an, an expanding, contracting sort of environment. But TrueCrypt is TrueCrypt, and there's a lot of good things to be said about that. And so depending upon this need to unmount it or not, uh, that may or may not be the problem. And it may very well be that other of these less secure than we wish services, but who otherwise provide, you know, good features, like many people really like Dropbox, um, can be can have a true crypt container file hosted on them and then, you know, really get TNO security. Matthew Figure said, uh, SGGRC, you can use Secret Sync with Google Drive as it functions just the same as Dropbox for some security. And so, you know, we covered so many of these options, these, these cloud providers last week, I had to go back and remind myself what the heck was Secret Sync. I remember it seemed kind of good. And so it, it is doing pre-internet encryption and apparently is TNO, but it's one of these that has recurring charges. No charge up to two gigs. And if your needs were modest, then it's free forever at two gigs. But if you go beyond that, it jumps to $40 per year for up to 20 gigs of, of encrypted storage. And then beyond that, it, it's $60 a year for a terabyte. So it's like, okay, maybe that makes sense. Um, I like the way it looked. Um, we have to really vet it to make sure that it was TNO, and, and I haven't. Um, but it is one of those where, you know, you're paying them for the encryption privilege and you're paying somebody else for the storage privilege. So it's not clear to me that, you know, that that makes as much sense as um, as, as a solution which is is free. And my sense is we're going to be going there. We're, there, there will be alternatives that are free uh, before long. Toby Dawson says, might be worth a look. Uh, might be worth a look regarding online storage solutions, includes Drive. Uh, oh, this was interesting. Uh, very interesting, actually. This was uh, The Verge hosted a huge, wonderful grid. In fact, I tweeted this recently, so you can find the link in my recent Twitter feed. It's not very deep at this point, you know, just SGGRC. Um, 
but I also made it this week's bit.ly link, uh, but it's not SN250, something, someone is probably uh, getting up to some mischief, or, or maybe not, but already used that. So this week's bit.ly link, bit.ly, is slash SN hyphen clouds, all lowercase, SN hyphen clouds. This is a very nice feature-oriented comparison of all these things. Google Drive, Dropbox, SkyDrive, SugarSync, Clouds, I mean, all these guys. Um, and it goes through them one by one. But if you scroll way down, about halfway down, they pull it all together in one huge grid. You know, again, it doesn't talk about security because, of course, that's a little harder to figure out in many of these cases. But it's definitely got a, a nice feature comparison of all these guys. So once again, bit, bit, bit.ly slash sn hyphen clouds, all lowercase, and you can find it. Or I just did recently tweet it, so you can find the link there too. Tyler McHenry, uh, a software engineer with Google in Sunnyvale, California, tweeted. He said, G Drive, obviously, you know, his drive, Google Drive, could be TNO if used with ENCFS meaning the encrypted file system. He said, but the web UI would be useless, of course. So Tyler is, is, has, you know, is saying the same thing I've been saying, which, and I'm, I'll bet you we end up with a solution like that, sort of a hybrid where we, we come up with something that's using the encrypted file system, and then, and then it looks like a drive or a file which is growing and shrinking and gives us all the benefit of of full TNO security, yet at the same time, all the features of Google Drive. Justin Jarris said, take another look at Box. You sort of glazed over them in your discussion on security now. They have a big presence in the mobile space. Well, I looked at them again, uh, and they are neither uh, pre-internet encryption nor trust no one. And the storage costs are extremely high, about three times what Amazon and Rackspace costs. So I just don't see that there's much. I mean, yes, they were there. They've been there for a long time. They've got a lot of inertia. They've got a big following. Um, my feeling is, that, you know, the, the future is uh, uncertain because they're going to be undercut by now that the big boys are getting into the game. And, boy, we're, we've got so many options uh, for, for much better security. Uh, you know, if you need the features they have and you, you don't need pre-internet encryption or you can use something to, to, to layer that on top, then it might make sense. But still pretty expensive. Graham Todd in, in Dublin, Belfast said, uh, oh, he asked, would you be interested in safeboxapp.com? Um, he says it's pre-egress encryption for Dropbox, Google Drive, Windows Live, SkyDrive, SugarSync, Zumo Drive, Carbonite, F-Secure, etc. And I checked it out, safeboxapp.com. It's not clear what they're going to have. They're coming soon. Uh, they offer it for Mac and Windows. Uh, you can sign up for notification. So, you know, there's just uh, one more opportunity. Uh, and since we are running long, I think I will... Take your advice, Ayaz, and skip these last guys because there's nothing really crucial in those. Um, I did note that Spider Oak has a promo code of SPRING. 
So for anyone, I don't know what that means. I don't know what it gets you yet, but I just wanted to pass it along. Uh, I don't think it's super top secret. They didn't tell it to me. Someone else did. So the promo code is SPRING, S-P-R-I-N-G, for Spider Oak. Spider Oak. Uh, I wanted to note that TweetDeck is now available for the web. Uh, just general browser interface. I was very impressed. Web.tweetdeck.com. I tried it under Firefox and Chrome, and it's beautiful. It comes up, and it's like full running Twitter tweet deck in real time on those browsers. So that's just way cool. Um, okay. So I did have a note that I wanted to share about Spinrite from a Todd Bertels, um, who is a listener. He said, Steve, good morning. I'd like to share with you some of my successes with your Spinrite app. After listening every week to you and Leo for the past year, I've decided to share some of these with you. I've used Spinrite on several laptop, desktop, and server hard drives and found that as long as the system recognizes the drive and there are no scraping sounds <laughs> coming from the drive, it will most likely work. Most of these are unremarkable stories with the exception of two. First, my server hard drive failed approximately three weeks after I installed a network-attached security camera. The camera was configured to push a still image to the server via FTP once a second and overwrite the file existing there. This file, uh, I'm sorry, these images are the same size, so it wore a pothole in the drive, and the drive failed completely. After running Spinrite, everything came back, except for the one camera image file. Truly amazing. And secondly, my wife handed me her iPod mini when we were at the gym. It was very sluggish and would hang for three or four minutes at a time before playing again for a few more minutes. We tried syncing it with the computer, but that would fail after a few attempts. It had failed hard drive written all over it. So I dissected the little gadget and removed the Hitachi micro drive from inside, went to Fry's, and got a CF slash IDE adapter and ran it against Spinrive, uh, Spinrite. After 45 minutes, the drive was running as good as new. Steve, your product is truly amazing. I've tried many other data recovery products and services over the years, and they just don't work. Usually, you get data back just enough to make you kick yourself for not having better backups. Cheers and thanks, Todd Bertels. So, Todd? Thank you very much. Okay. So, yeah, I tried out TweetDeck by, for the web, by the way. Just going back real fast. I don't like it. They, I think tweet, Twitter screwed up TweetDeck huge. I don't know. Do you like it? Um, I, I just fired up on both browsers, and it, it, it worked. And, in fact, I'm a TweetDeck user. That's where I'm watching all this stuff happening all the time. So. I, I, used to like, I'm, I guess I'm, not, I'm an old man. I like the old uh, Adobe Air version of it when I had, like, 15 columns. But that's just – that's – Things well, changed. I've got like eight. Or is there a column limitation? Well, it, when when Twitter bought it, uh, they kind of changed. They basically threw out all my old columns for some reason. They like start over, and so then that, that's oh. when they lost me entirely. So ah, okay. Onto I think it's what we have left. Backblaze. We have a whole well, section of Backblaze, which is all about cloud storage. But wait, there's a finger up. Precisely. You have an an insert now, right? I believe so. Let's let's go over to Leo, and he's going to tell you about Netflix. 
Steve, I don't want to interrupt, but I just want to mention briefly, and it won't take much time, Netflix, Netflix, Netflix. We talk about it all the time. What a great way to get content. If you've got a Roku box, a PlayStation 3, an Xbox 360, an iPad, an iPhone, an Android phone, a tablet, a Mac or a PC. I mean, I, you know, even on the new TVs with the smart apps, we just reviewed a, a Sharp TV, the Samsung TV. Everything has Netflix. The Sharp TV has a Netflix button on the remote, big red Netflix button on the remote. That's because Netflix streaming is so great. $7.99 a month, and you get all this great stuff, including new shows like Lillehammer, which we're all loving. If you haven't seen it, it's little Stevie, Stevie Steve Van Zant's uh, new show. He's in the Witness Protection Program, gets relocated to Norway. Why, they say, why did you want to go to Norway? He said, well, I saw the Winter Olympics at Lillehammer. They looked good. Looked like a nice place. It's very funny. As the, as kind of, kind of, he plays kind of the same character that he played on The, the Sopranos. So it's a, a mafia guy, a made man, goes to this little town in, uh, in, Lille, in Norway and, uh, and makes some waves, let me tell you. Actually, that's what I'm doing right now. That's kind of the story of my life. Uh, <laughs> give it a try. Netflix.com. Go there right now. Netflix.com slash twit. Free for a month if you already have it. Do me a favor. Excuse me. Do me a favor. Tell a friend. It's only seven ninety nine a month, but it's free for the first month when you go to Netflix.com slash twit. Back to you guys. Cloud storage solution. Backblaze was a cloud storage solution that you looked into extensively because apparently it has some, some things that need to be explained. Right, Steve? Yeah. So um, what happened was in response to our listeners who we heard from some of them who were tweeting, but there were many more, actually. They were saying, hey, what about Backblaze, which I had not covered last week? So I took a look at it, and it took some wading through. They've got some nice diagrams, but what you want in a, in a, in a diagram that explains cloud storage is you want it to clearly show you where the Internet is in the diagram, which is to say... What is encrypted on your side of the Internet connection? What's going on on the other side of the Internet connection? So they had some flow diagrams that talked about, you know, 248-bit public keys. And you, so we, so we randomly generate a 128-bit uh, uh, AES symmetric encryption key. Then we use the public key to encrypt it. And then that goes off and... and uh, and and actually, uh, I'll explain what, what what they're doing in a minute. But the point was that, the, unfortunately, it wasn't clear what was being done where. That they sort of had a flowchart, but not you know you are here and the internet pipe is here, and you know nothing that shouldn't go through the internet pipe is doing so. So I had to dig deeper, and I ended up finding there what they call their security question roundup page. And so under, for example, how good is the encryption? What do you use? Because it's clear that many people, I mean, if these are real questions being asked, and certainly our listeners are caring because they were tweeting like crazy saying, what's the story? Um, a question is, how good is the encryption? What do you use? And so their answer is, we use 2048-bit public-private keys to secure a symmetric AES 128-bit key that changes for every backup session on your computer. Usually this is once per hour. You can read about our approach here, and then they link to a how-to-make-strong encryption page. 
And then they say, we copied the design of Microsoft's encrypted file system designed by a group of much smarter people than ourselves. We didn't invent any of this. It's all off-the-shelf, open SSL library stuff. It's like, okay. Um, and then later on on this page, it says, my place or yours is a separate AES. And again, this is like people still trying to understand what's going on because it, it's just not made clear. Is a separate AES encryption done on my computer before the data is sent to your server? If not, how does the key generation work? So the answer is, at a higher level, Backblaze uses OpenSSL. So the answer to most of your questions is found by reading up on that technology. Luckily, this is the widest known encryption library and technology on Earth. At Backblaze, we aren't encryption experts. We just specialize in making what is normally only for rocket scientists usable by mom-and-pop consumer. Then we have a smiley face. Then a little bit lower down, answer is still answering the same question, trying to, you know, I don't know, put someone's mind at ease. They said, the private key stored in your account in the Backblaze data center is also a PEM file, which is just a, a standardized format for, for securing, you know, for, for storing binary data. Stored in the data center is also a PEM file. And by default, it is secured, encrypted, by our well-known passphrase, which means technically, if a Backblaze employee was malicious enough and knew enough and spent enough time to target one of our million-ish customers, then we, then we could have access to your file's contents. Then it says, parens, a firing offense at Backblaze, and we guard the access to a very exclusive list of Backblaze employees. Well, that tears it. I mean... What that says is that if an employee goes rogue and decrypts their customer's data, they'll get fired. But it also says it's possible. And we know that it should not be possible. So here's what they do. They, when you install the Backblaze client on your machine... They generate a 248, a 2048 bit public key pair. And we know how that works from our, many times we've discussed it in asymmetric encryption. One of them is used to encrypt, the other is used to decrypt. Then for a, oh, okay, so they generate the key pair. And as part of your account setup, the private key is sent to them. And they make a big point elsewhere of saying it is never written to your disk and never stored on your computer. It's like, okay, but so you send it to them. Then to do a backup, a pseudo-random 128-bit AES symmetric key is generated just for that backup. The backup blob is encrypted with that key. Then that key that you used for that backup 
is encrypted with your public key that is uniquely yours and for which they have the private key, then the encrypted blob and the encrypted key for it in, that was encrypted with your public key is all sent to Backblaze. And again, on their site, they make a point of, and that key is never written, to the, the, that temporary symmetric key is never written to your drive, it's only in RAM, and it's immediately deleted. Okay, so what that means is that at this point, they are the only people who can decrypt it. You can't. I mean, it's your data, but you can't decrypt it. Um, so it's on their server, and when you want it back, even if, I mean, and, and we're, I'm, I'm not, I have no reason to mistrust them, but I mean, really none. I, I think they're a good company, nice people, well-intentioned, but they've just got a messed up crypto model. So, I mean, if, if they're trying to offer really good security and the idea now is that if you want it back, you can't, you, you can't get it back because you don't have the key. You ask them to decrypt with your private key, which they have, the key that was used to encrypt the data. They decrypt it for you and send it back. So uh, you see my problem. <laughs> Is there anything, I guess, after, after going through the FAQ here, or the security question roundup, that is, is there anything positive about Backblaze after reading all this? Because it sounds like it's kind of a, a mess. Yeah, it's a mess. Um, and I wish it weren't a mess. But, I mean, there, there, isn't, there isn't another way to explain it. And also, frankly, I mean, they've, there is this sort of sense. Well, okay, I, what I should do now, because I, 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 let me share with you my communication to Gleb Budman, who is the CEO and co-founder, Gleb, G-L-E-B, Budman, who reached out, contacted me, wanted to know what my concerns were. I said, hi, Gleb. First off, let me explain that my tweets today were triggered because so many people were asking me why I wasn't recommending Backblaze or what I thought of Backblaze. My Security Now podcast of last week focused upon many cloud storage providers. But Backblaze was not among them, so I simply had not looked. Secondly, as my most recent tweet tried to explain, I'm talking about some strict techie details, not about how and whether Backblaze is trustworthy. I have no reason whatsoever to suspect Backblaze is anything other than totally trustworthy. But the problem is, your security model requires, all caps, that your users trust you. That's not in itself a bad thing. But during the seven and a half years of the podcast, we have covered cryptography and cryptographic systems extensively. And we have developed the acronym TNO, which is short for Trust No One. It is possible for cloud storage solutions to implement a cryptographic model where at no time and in no way could the storage provider possibly decrypt their users or clients' data? And a number of internet remote storage providers do just that. But from my careful reading of your online documentation, it seems very clear that that is not a security architecture 
that your organization has adopted. Thus, you are not TNO safe. You can, if you choose to or were compelled to, decrypt your users' stored data. So I then quote some of his own pages, which I won't go over again. And I said, oh, and I should mention that one of the, one of the additional complications is that they offer an enhanced level of security, which is really where this problem comes in, because they give their users the option to provide a password, which if they ever forget it, they're out of luck. Unfortunately, they do this wrong. They, the password that the user can optionally um, enable encrypts their private key, which is still stored at Backblaze. So what they've done is they've layered sort of a, a, an attempt to increase the security on top of a, an already broken model, but that doesn't unbreak it. So now what happens is the user who wants access, access to their data has to provide the password to them, which then they use to decrypt the private key, which is then used to decrypt the key that was used to encrypt the backup. So once again, the decryption is occurring at Backblaze, only they have the key. And so they, they, they can and have made the argument that, well, but we don't, we can't decrypt it all the time. You know, we have to wait for the customer to ask for the data. Then we can decrypt it. It's like, well, okay, that's still broken. I mean, all they have to do is, is change their model. Don't do this. We're holding the only key in the universe that can decrypt our customer's data. But, well, we promise not to look at it. Okay. Well, anyway, so um, continuing with my note to, to Gleb, I said, from studying those pages, I understand that. One, when the Backblaze client is installed, a 2048-bit asymmetric key pair are created. The user's client computer retains the public key and the private key is sent to Backblaze. For every backup session, a one-time 128-bit pseudo-random asymmetric AES key is generated. That symmetric key is used to encrypt the user's data, and that key is encrypted with the user's public key. The symmetrically encrypted backup data and the asymmetrically encrypted encryption key are then all sent to Backblaze. So just to stop for a second, I mean, yes, this is confusing. And you can understand why with, you know, people who just want to know, is this TNO or not, can't figure it out. I mean, you know, and the diagrams aren't clear. And it's sort of, unfortunately, this is all kind of a little glib on their site. It's just not science. Um, you know, it's, oh, well, we'll fire them if they do that. Um, I said, so this is unbelievably broken. Even the user cannot decrypt their own data. Only Backblaze, who maintains the user's matching private key, has the ability now, at will, to decrypt the encryption key used to encrypt the data, then decrypt the data, and presumably that's precisely what you do whenever the user wants to browse or retrieve their files. However, you could also do it anytime you desired. Now, I know that you provide a mechanism for allowing the user to encrypt their private key on your servers. 
so that even you can't decrypt their backup encryption keys. But it's never possible to layer more bad security onto a fundamentally broken security model to fix it. In this case, if you were under court order to provide a user's data, you would merely need to wait until that user did wish to access their storage and thus provide you with their secret key to decrypt their private key. And you would then have access to all of that user's stored backup data. Anyway, um, you know, that's their situation. So Gleb slept on it overnight um, and sent me a note, you know, in the wee hours of the morning saying that he would respond when he'd had some sleep. And he said, Steve, thanks for the detailed email. I believe you are largely accurate. Oh, and I have his permission to share his response to me with our audience on the podcast. I believe you are largely accurate in your understanding of how the system works but are largely wrong in your resulting conclusions. With one exception, which is a fair concern, and I'll address. Let me explain. First, Backblaze has two models for security. Trust Backblaze. In this default option, we have the ability to decrypt your data. This model exists for one reason, so that users can recover their password. The point of backup is to protect people from data loss. For the majority of users, the biggest risk is that they will forget their password and never be able to recover their data. To be clear, even in this model, all data is stored encrypted, and only a very few people in our entire company are trusted with the keys. So while it is trust backblaze, the encryption still serves a valid purpose. Now, let me pause for a minute. It's like, I completely agree with that. We all get it that trust no one means no one but yourself. That is, if, you're, if you are the sole key holder to data stored in the cloud, you can't lose those keys. You know, I guess my argument is how hard is that to prevent? You know, right? I mean, how many key, how, how many things do we have, tools that we have that help us remember our passwords? And there's also a good old paper and pencil if something is really crucial. Anyway, going on, he continues, trust no one. In this option, a user can choose to encrypt their private key with a private passphrase. In this model, neither Backblaze nor anyone else except the user can ever decrypt users' data unless they give, unless they, the user gives them the passphrase. Well, as I said, unfortunately, the user does give them the passphrase anytime they need visibility into their data. And at that point, Backblaze decrypts the private key and has access. So, broken. Anyway, I, I don't want to criticize his response too much because he may, he, I want him, you know, to allow him to ha have his say. While 90% of our customers choose the first option, and I firmly believe that for the majority of users, this is the right decision because their biggest risk is not a government subpoena, but losing their password. However, for the purpose of our discussion, I will focus on the second option since it would be the one you and some of your listeners are probably most interested in. You say that our security model for storing the private key encrypted by the user's private passphrase is inherently flawed. However, this is the model 
that Microsoft encrypted file system is based on. Okay. Uh, I believe this is the same way your sponsor Carbonite does their encryption. Okay. If you believe us storing a private key encrypted with a passphrase is not secure, this would imply encryption inherently is unsafe, in which case it does not matter who has the private key since all of these systems inherently rely on encryption. Okay, well, that's not correct. You know, I mean, the problem is, as we understand now, the user gives them the private key to decrypt their their um, uh, the, the user gives them the, the private passphrase to Backblaze, which then allows Backblaze to decrypt the asymmetric asymmetric private key and then decrypt the backup. So there's nothing wrong with encryption. Um, it's the, their model is broken. The whole where things are and where they're done is is not trust no one. Because, okay, well, he says, when the user picks a private passphrase, Backblaze can never decrypt the data, regardless of any government subpoena. That's not true either. The model requires that they decrypt the data. Okay, so he says, the one exception, which I want to be fair to you about, is that when the user does a restore, oh, here it comes, Backblaze needs to provide the user with their decrypted data. Mm Mm-hmm. In this model, unfortunately, that's true. Thus, we ask the user for their private passphrase at that moment. There is a moment of risk here, but very short. On the other hand, computers are very fast. The system is automated. No employee ever sees the key. The key is only stored in RAM and is never written to disk. Okay, so to be fair, I think these guys have done like the best job they can with their broken model. It's still broken. It's still wrong. And there's no reason not to trust them. But it's just, it's this, you know, it's not done right. He says, going further, I claim that if you believe a real trust no one policy, you cannot use Jungle Disk, Carbonite, or any other provider. Because to use them, you have to trust them. And he has a number of points. They have code that runs on your system connected to the Internet. They do not open source their code. And even if they did, would you review every single line of their code every time they did a release? They can say that they do all sorts of things, but they could simply put a keylogger on your computer and send all your data directly to the government. In fact, if they're required by a subpoena to get your data and they have an application running on your system, they could change their app just for you. Thus, even if some expert reviewed the code, that will not guarantee that the code on your computer is doing what they publicly say. Thus, you are inherently trusting them to do what they say. Okay, well, right. All of those things are true for everybody, for all users of all of these things. Yet, we there are solutions whose architecture keeps, by design, keeps the encrypted data on the local machine and only ever ships out decrypted data and never discloses its keys. And that's not what this does. And he says, what we say, we encrypt all of your data by default on your computer. 
we send all of that data over an encrypted connection and store it encrypted. You can choose to have your data encrypted with a private passphrase of your choosing. If you do, no one, he has in all caps, can ever decrypt your data unless you provide your private passphrase. That's true. If you do a restore and enter your private passphrase, the key is stored in RAM, not written to disk, not seen by anyone. So he's saying they're, you know, they've given their model, they're trying to be as responsible as they can. They're, they're doing the best job they can, which I completely accept. He says, furthermore, the moment after restoring your files, you can change your private passphrase. Thus, again, it would be impossible for anyone to decrypt the data, even if we wrote new code to capture your key, which we don't have. And of course, understand that to decrypt your files, they are the ones who decrypt them, <laughs> which is fundamentally the problem here. Nothing can get around that. Then, we never decrypt data without the user explicitly requesting it or if a government subpoena required it. Okay, well, that's comforting. And with your private passphrase, if that, if that is impossible. In the five years of Backblaze, we've never been subpoenaed or decrypted any user's data without their permission. And of course, they have to say that because they're legally obligated not to disclose under Patriot Act if they've done so. So, you know, he volunteered that, but, you know, and I believe it, but that doesn't mean it won't happen tomorrow. So he's finishing. Should we trust, should you trust Essex as a company to do what we say? We're very public about who we are and are accessible on email, Twitter, Facebook, Google+, both as a company and individually, and they are. We've been in Silicon Valley building products and companies for over a decade, and they have. Our, co our last company was an email security company where we protected some of the largest companies on the planet from spam, viruses, phishing, etc. Does that make sense? I'm happy to chat, connect with you, with, to connect you with our CTO or VP of engineering, share more details with our approach and systems, join you on your program or anything else you would like. So I thank him. And I think everyone understands now. Um, this is a great example of, of an attempt at security. I mean, there is lots of security here. Um, data is encrypted. It is always encrypted as it goes to them. Unfortunately, their model, and I don't understand who designed this. I mean, they earlier, and they said on their public pages, they're not cryptography experts, and I'm fully going to agree with them on that too. Um, you know, this is just not correct. And my, my argument, I was, and I said in my, I responded to his note, and I said, look, I'm not telling you what to do. You could obviously do anything you want. I, I accept that you're good guys, but there are people who care and they believe something that is not true from reading your pages. It takes really carefully understanding what you have said in your technical documentation to get it. And, and the reason there's been some concern generated when I posted on Twitter that this is not a trust no one architecture is that people thought it was. They, they, 
you know, the, the, the pages are so confusing whether, I mean, I don't want to say deliberately so, because there's sort of like, oh, well, you know, we're not rocket scientists and neither are you. So, you know, and besides we used open SSL and we copied Microsoft, you know, as if any of that means anything. So, you know, I think these guys are fine. I, I think they're trustworthy. And it is true that you're, as long as, as long as things are static, if you employ their optional passphrase, then your copy of your private key is encrypted on their system and they can't get your data. It's not until you want to look at it or ask for it that you need to provide them the ability to decrypt your data and send it back to you. But that's just not the way it should be. Not if they, if they really want to provide security. And I did write this in my response to him. I said, all you have to do is not send the private key over, just send back the encrypted data and let the user decrypt it himself. So easy to fix this, but it's not the way the system works now. So that's gonna, the story. <laughs> that's the story. Do you think they're going to implement your changes since you, uh, uh, you just gave them free advice? There was, well, and uh, who knows? Uh, I saw someone tweeted something about a 2.0, but this wasn't coming from Backblaze. Um, and... A response did indicate, um, I think he responded to my response, which, you know, thanked him for his clarifications and things. But there was something about, you know, moving forward in the future, you know, we're going to make things better. So, okay, that would be good. <laughs> well, hopefully they'll at least clarify their security questions and at least their, their documentation about it. Because it, it does seem like they... They just try to give you some reasons. You're know, hoping they can uh, figure it out. But thanks to you, Steve, everyone knows now. So it's a lot, lot easier. Uh, wow, that's because I, I read that. I read that uh, documentation too, and I was just like, yeah, it seems a little bit like they're being honest, but it seems like they don't exactly know. Uh, well, yeah, it, they they seem like. I mean, I really get the sense these are good people, uh, but they're not crypto people. You know, maybe they're email people. I don't know, but I mean. It's just a dumb architecture. It's like, you know, you, you I mean, it, I mean, it's really, you, you generate a random key to encrypt your data, and then you encrypt that with your public key, and the private key that matches was sent to them, and they make a point of, of telling you it's not on your computer, it's never been stored, which means you, you cannot decrypt it, your, your own data. Only they can. I'm just like, okay. okay. Who came up with this? Just nutty. So, uh, I, you know, again, but, but you know, they're offering way more security, for example, than SkyDrive and, and, and Google Drive because those guys aren't doing any client-side encryption. And, you know, they're, they're all kinds of, you know, their privacy statements say that they'll, the data is safe in the cloud and it's encrypted and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there is only... There's, there's absolutely a simple test, and that is for, for, for TNO, and that is decrypted data never leaves the machine. Only encrypted data ever exits the machine, and keys for that never leave your control. They also never leave. That's all there is to it. If you have that, and see, the beauty is here they're like, worrying about having to fire people and 
and, you know, needing to lock down access to the key that could decrypt. Remember that 90% of their users, you know, think they're being encrypted on their machine and that that means it's like safe at the other end, except that they just said some employees have access to the key that can decrypt 90% of their, uh, right now, of their customers' data. All those people who didn't use the extra passphrase, which means that, you know, they've got all this responsibility. Why have that responsibility? If you architected with TNO, you don't have to worry about, about you know, your own employees or government subpoenas. You can make a much more simple declaration of your security rather than these pages of gobbledygook that nobody really understands. Just say, no, no one can get it, period. And it's true. Unfortunately, it's not here. Well, thanks, Steve. You know, it's been an education, and I hope I didn't get the show canceled. Uh, <laughs> it's been just a lot of information in my head. You can find all Steve's stuff at grc.com. Shields Up is a fantastic program. And if you want to know about the steps we talked about in this show, you can check out the show notes at twit.tv sn. And uh, thank you so much, Steve. I ask. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, now I've got two backups for Leo who uh, are, are qualified to do the podcast with me. So I'm glad to have you. I'm Thanks. glad I, I survived the, the baptism there. So <laughs> thank you, Steve. Bye-bye. Security now.